I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Uh, Connecting to this place, I invite you now to connect to this place, this land, this moment. Connecting to this place, I acknowledge and thank the human and non-human beings who have and continue to co-create community, mutuality, harmony. This includes the Chinookan peoples, the forest beings, the fungi, the lichen, flying beings, birds, geese, crows, insects, coyote, living soil, sacred earth. Today, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about vow. We've been studying and um, clarifying our vows this month in the Zen community of Oregon. There have been various classes and teachings. Chosen Roshi's given two talks on the last two Sundays about vow, about life intention. And starting on Monday, um, we have our week-long meditation retreat, Sashin, themed around vow. And there are still openings, so you're welcome to register for that on our website. And simultaneously, as we are investigating uh, vow and intention, the monastics are studying the Heart Sutra, as inspiration for creative practice period. That is now, this creative practice period is now a tradition at Great Vow every winter. And the Heart Sutra is something that we chant here at the monastery every morning in English and in Sino-Japanese. And we chant every Sunday during our Sunday morning program. I've been reflecting on how the Heart Sutra and the insights of the Heart Sutra. And these are insights that we have access to and are invited to explore. The insights of the Heart Sutra are so intimately um, related to the process of vow. The Heart Sutra is, you could see it as a deep expression of the Bodhisattva vow the vow to awaken and to help others awaken. Of course, the bodhisattva vow is often expressed in that really essential way. And when we take up the bodhisattva vow, it's expressed in our own essential way. Those words are helpful pointers, though, to awaken and to help all beings awaken or to awaken together with all beings. So in the Heart Sutra, we have the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion, Avalokiteshvara. Bodhisattva means awakening being, one who is on the path of awakening, on the path of practice. So that includes all of us. 
And the Bodhisattva of Compassion is Avalokiteshvara, translated in Japanese as Konzion or Kanjizai. And in English, that means the one who hears the cries of the world, one who hears the cries of the world or sees the suffering in the world and responds with compassion. So this bodhisattva is depicted in so many different forms. And one of the forms is someone with 10,000 arms and hands. And in each hand, sometimes an eye, so we can see all the suffering in the world, and sometimes a tool to help relieve suffering. A skillful means. I was asking Kenyo, who studied um, Sanskrit, what Avalokiteshvara meant more literally. And he said, one who gazes upon everything with compassion. And I, I liked that because it had the practice of how we can uh, take up being, embodying Avalokiteshvara. How we are the Bodhisattva of compassion when we gaze upon everything with compassion. So there's a practice that you can enter and explore the Heart Sutra from. So Avalokiteshvara is the speaker of the Heart Sutra, at least it appears that way in our translation. And so the teachings should be read from the heart of compassion as Avalokiteshvara, as compassion, we explore the teachings of emptiness, emptiness, teachings of no, zero-ness, or limitlessness, boundlessness. There are other ways to translate emptiness. Openness is one that we like here. So the Heart Sutra says, your body or form we use, your body, is how Thich Nhat Hanh translates it, is no other than emptiness. Well, I, as I read these words, it's much more interesting to explore them in your direct experience. So you have a body, your body. What is that? What is the experience of your body as boundlessness, as spaciousness? When you enter the direct experience of body, maybe choose just one part of the body, the hands. Can you feel into a sense of boundlessness? Do the hands in your direct experience have edges? have a center. The sutra goes on to say, perception is also boundless. Perception. Your perceptions are limitless. Your perceptions are open. And then it continues, sensation sensation how do we experience sensation 
The body has physical sensation, eyes, sensation of seeing, ears hearing. Sensation is also boundless, spacious, open. And then thought, thought too, boundless, spacious, empty. And awareness, consciousness, also boundless. Spending time with each of those aspects of experience and trying on the teaching or the exploration of boundlessness, limitlessness, openness, and seeing, oh, do I know that to be true in my own direct experience, in my meditation, in my daily life? Now, what the Heart Sutra is not saying is that the body, sensation, perception, thought, awareness don't exist. It's not saying that at all. It's also not saying that we need to get rid of them, get rid of it. It's actually saying enter form directly, enter this body directly, feel these sensations directly. And then asks, well, what do you notice when you do that? What do you notice when you know thought directly from the inside? The Heart Sutra isn't something that we paste on top of experience, but is actually something we use to explore our own direct experience. What happens when I sit inside a thought? Or I look at thought intimately, know it directly, Is it spacious, undefinable, ungraspable, open? What happens when I enter the mind directly, know the mind directly? Is the mind spacious, open, ungraspable? So I'd like to uh, enter this direct knowing a little bit more. And so to know the body directly, I think this is worth repeating, to know the body directly, we must feel the body. We don't just say, oh, body is empty. Okay, done, did that. But we enter the body directly and see, is that actually our experience? So to feel the body directly is to go to the sensation that I have a body. So feel the body sitting here, the contact that the body is making with the seat, the cushion, the chair. Feel, inhabit your legs, your feet, each toe. Verify that there's sensation there. Extending awareness to include the lower half of the body.
And then moving from feet, legs, trunk, to include the upper half, abdomen, back, chest, upper back, shoulders, bringing these parts of the body online, shoulders, arms, upper arm, lower arm, palms of the hand, each finger, extending out to each fingertip. Neck, head, face. Opening to the felt sense of the body. And see, notice what you experience. Does the body have a shimmering quality, quality of sensations? Is there space surrounding those sensations. Letting attention inhabit the body in this way, draining the energy from the brain, from thought. Letting the senses be open. Just hanging loosely open. And then if someone asks you What is your deepest intention without losing touch with this experience of the body? Just let that question enter your mind stream, your heart stream. And notice what happens. Does the mind reach up and construct a self? Does the mind already know the answer and say something? Does tension arise? Do emotions arise? And then letting go of that question. I return to the felt sense of the body. Feel the breath. Inhabit the body again fully. Aware of the space within the body.
perhaps releasing a sense of my body and just opening to the field of sensations, the field of sensations that we call a body. Perhaps if you're able, letting go of the narrative of the self. Letting go of past and future. Really being here in these sensations. What is your deepest intention? to what stirs when the question is asked, what is your deepest intention? And again, letting go of the question, returning to the felt sense of the body, turning to the breath. That's one way that the Heart Sutra and vow, practice, go together, the Heart Sutra helps us empty out, shows us the places where we're stuck or form separation, gives us a practice for letting go. One of the uh, commentaries we've read on the Heart Sutra said, maybe the essence of the Heart Sutra is let go and relax. The Heart Sutra helps us see how we form separation. We can take the nose in the Heart Sutra as question marks. What are you calling suffering? What are you calling liberation? If you think you are suffering, enter the experience directly. If you feel stuck or angry or afraid, Remember here with compassion, because this sutra is about compassion and curiosity. But if you feel stuck or angry or afraid, enter this feeling called stuckness, called anger, called fear. Enter this idea you have about consciousness or awareness. What is it? It's again not saying everything is empty so you don't have to look. Just push it all away, especially the stuff you don't like. That's what emptiness is. It's not saying that. 
not saying that. It's the opposite. And actually we call that pushing away, labeling things as empty and pushing away without actually investigating spiritual bypassing. To actually enter and to actually look and feel and experience our experience and clarify what's true, that's the work of vow. And that's the invitation of the Heart Sutra. This takes great faith and courage and heart and it deepens the soul and really strengthens the character of a person to to really look at your own experience, not to just listen to what someone else might say about it, but to really look. And if there's doubt, to keep looking, to stay with the inquiry. Emptiness also means interrelatedness. So empty of an independent self. We are all is a network of interdependent co-arising, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. On Friday, this past Friday, January 15th, Martin Luther King Jr. would have been 92. I was reading a talk that he gave on Christmas 1967, which was the Christmas before his death, in, in memory of him. On Monday, we as a nation will celebrate Martin, King, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And Martin Luther King Jr. was a deeply spiritual person, a preacher, a visionary to say the least. And we would say he's a person of deep vow, such a deep commitment to truth and to really exploring what love is fundamentally. He was inspired um, by Gandhi, this concept satyagraha, which means truth power or love power. And that inspired the nonviolent action, um, nonviolent action that was the hallmark of his activism and teaching. So I want to share a passage from his Christmas sermon. He is telling about the impact he had um, when he went to India. And he saw just how many people, millions of people in Bombay and Calcutta who uh, sleep on the sidewalks and go to bed hungry at night. And he was deeply touched by this experience. And he asked, how can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? I started thinking about the fact that right here in our country, we spend millions of dollars every day to store surplus food. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of millions of God's children in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and even in our own nation who go to bed hungry at night. And then he says, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. 
It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for the sponge and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go into the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea that's poured into your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you're desirous to have cocoa for breakfast and that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half of the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Interconnection is an insight that we must learn to embody. It's an insight that we can feel into in doing reflections like the one that Martin Luther King Jr. offers is so crucial to recognizing how interdependent we are. And Chosen Roshi has a similar exercise where she has us just take a single piece of food and trace it back and just keep tracing it back. Well, where did it come from? How is it brought to your plate right now? I'm going to like the store and who put it in the bag? Back and back and back and back. It's a similar thing, but to do it, to actually continue to practice it makes the insight real and then we learn to embody it and live it. If the whole earth and all beings were your body, how would you treat it? How do we reconcile with a current climate emergency? What is our responsibility to all beings? These questions are big. And they also ask us, can we be okay with not having a solution right away? With holding the complexity, with not knowing with deepening our understanding of ourselves within this interconnected web and actually stay committed to doing that? Can we make space to contemplate our death and fear of death? Can we make room to grieve, to feel overwhelmed? Can we stay connected to fundamental truths as we contemplate interconnection. I know sometimes when I start opening my mind to the larger systems that I participate in, I feel overwhelm and shame. 
or when I tried to stay informed this past week about the insurrection at our Capitol and the potential violence that may ensue next week, my mind can start looping. I want to get more information, the pictures, the images, the videos playing, invoking a sense of fear. And in both these scenarios, I can lose touch with what else is true. And this is one of the fundamental aspects of our practice. It actually gives us the tools to hold complexity and to open to what else is true. Like right now, I am safe. That doesn't take away from the complexity of interconnection, but it's also true. Right now, I can feel my feet my hands, I can breathe deep, I can connect to the body, I can feel, give space for my emotions. I can hear the sounds in the room, the popping of the heater, the beauty of this golden light. I can remember I'm with people that I love and this still doesn't negate anything else. It's just also true. I want to explore practice together to open the door to interrelatedness while we stay connected to what else is true. So this is a shared meditation. It's sharing our inner space together. It's called noting, and that's a Vipassana practice, but I think we could pick it up. And it's quite powerful. So all you have to do is give voice to whatever is in the foreground of your experience. So right now, there is hearing. That was just the first thing I noticed. So we're here gonna pass around the microphone and all you have to say is whatever is in the foreground of your experience. So it could be there is tightness in the chest. There is anxiety. There's a pit in my stomach. There is sound. There is hearing. Whatever, whatever you feel, there is joy. There is seeing. Whatever is in the forefront of your experience. So we're going to pass the microphone around here in the Zendo and um, people will say it out loud and please just listen. And then those on Zoom or live stream, you can type it in the chat, your experience after we go through everyone in the Zendo. There is liveliness. There is fatigue. There is overwhelming joy. I can turn mine off. Yeah. Okay. We're going to start over again because my microphone was dominating. It is. <laughs> is peace. So now those of you on Zoom, please just type in there is and whatever you're aware of in the forefront of your awareness.
Do you want to hear a few more typing? Yeah, well, so now Shokan will read some of what um, was typed. Thank you. So that um, practice is one way, it's called intersubjective meditation. It's one way of, usually in meditation, we are just having our own experience. And although we are affecting each other, even on Zoom, I feel, um, we are affecting each other by our presence and our practice. We don't know um, what someone else is experiencing. So this is one way of getting just a slice of someone's inner, just for that moment, right? That's, that's the moment it's true when they give voice to it. So I would like to do it again, but with a different uh, phrase. So this time, I would like to invite us to open to the shared field. This idea that we're sharing in co-creating a field of awareness. And listen to what others stay, say, but stay in your experience. And this exercise, we're going to say the noting word and then say, is like this. And I got the image of the elephant and the blind men, and people are feel, feeling different parts of the elephant and describing it. So that's what we're going to do together. We're going to describe just by saying what's at the forefront of our awareness, what awareness is, what the shared field is, or what it's like. So we'll start again. I'll go first. Mucus is like this. To add your noting phrase uh, in the chat. You're welcome to do that. Thank you. Those were two experiments with interpersonal or intersubjective meditation. <clears throat> oh, so to close, I'd like to read um, the first sentence from the last paragraph of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Christmas sermon, and then uh, the Soto Zen Buddhist Association statement in response to the attack on Congress on January 6th. This statement is now posted on our website. And just to let you all know, on Inauguration Day, which is next Wednesday, we'll be offering a day of sitting where you can join the session for that day. And the schedule will be posted, and it will be up on our website, the link. And of course, you're also still welcome to register for session. And um, Jogan and I will both um, be offering during our nightly Zoom uh, opportunity, just depending on what happens in response to um, Inauguration Day in some way, really, really in response to what happens and we don't know. So maybe loving kindness, maybe a time to process. We'll see. So stay tuned for that. We'll send out an email.
says Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream that one day men will rise up and come to see that they are made to live together as brothers. I still have a dream this morning that one day every Negro in this country, every colored person in the world will be judged on the basis of the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And then this is the SCBA statement in response to the attack on Congress on January 6th. As Zen Buddhist clergy, we condemn the attack on the United States Congress on January 6th. We acknowledge the anguish and rage it has brought. At the center of our tradition is the understanding that violence leads to violence, compassion to compassion, ignorance to ignorance, and insight to insight. Although countless conditions led to the attack at the Capitol, we see that the violence at the Capitol was deeply tied to the white supremacy that has characterized this nation since its inception. White supremacy was a founding principle of the United States and remains one of the hierarchical conditions on which this nation operates. Until this country fully acknowledges and repairs the damage of the horrific violence and day-to-day inequities of its racist systems, we will continue to reap its fruit. We must recognize the poison of racism not as an evil committed by terrible people, but as a part of the fabric of our collective karma, which we must unravel together if we want to truly be free. We we witness the Confederate flags carried at the Capitol attack. We witness, too, the Nazi imagery there. A host of other structural oppressions are deeply tied to this attack, including a rejection of truth itself. Part of this rejection of truth is denial of the racism that permeates this country. As we have watched the attack on the Capitol, we witnessed the stark differences in the way law enforcement treated these protesters and the protesters at the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. We recognize that future violence is a very real possibility. Buddhism teaches us that there is always the possibility for healing and liberation. To be free of the violence of white supremacy and other modes of systemic oppression, we must fully acknowledge them collectively and individually as an ongoing practice. And from this acknowledgement, find the way to fundamentally transform our society. We, the undersigned, ask that as religious leaders, Zen clergy, could say Zen practitioners, commit to justice, accountability, and ethical action based in the teachings of Buddhism. We call on the clergy to address structural oppression within themselves, their sanghas, and their nations. With compassion alive in our hearts and the courage to face the truth, let us move into liberative action. And so um, the priests here all had the opportunity to sign 
this document, and I know Mushin signed it from our Corvallis Sangha. Thank you. <laughs>